Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we interview amazing LDS scholars about Mormon history, doctrine, and culture. Hello, and welcome to this episode of LDS Perspectives Podcast. My name is Nick Galetti. I'm hosting this episode with our special guest, David Archuleta. David Archuleta became a star in 2008 when more than 30 million television viewers fell in love with his angelic voice on season seven of American Idol. His first single, Crush, debuted at number two on the Billboard Hot 100 chart the week of its release. Three months later, David's self-titled album went gold, selling more than 750,000 copies in the U.S. and more than 900,000 worldwide. Born in Miami, Florida to musician parents, David credits his parents with shaping his musical style. His family moved to Murray, Utah when David was six years old. With the release of a number of albums, David entered the world of writing as the author of the 2010 New York Times bestselling memoir, Chords of Strength, a memoir of soul, song, and the power of perseverance. In 2012, David put his singing career on hiatus to serve as a full-time missionary in Rancagua, Chile. David returned in 2014, eager to perform and record once again. Since his return, he's traveled to the Middle East to perform for U.S. troops, recorded the song Glorious for the Meet the Mormons movie, as well as a number of other great songs. His latest album is Postcards in the Sky, and he joins us today as part of the Light the World campaign being shared across the world this holiday season. So, welcome, David. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. Clearly, you're a fan of Christmas music. Is that fair to say? I am a fan of Christmas okay, so, music, yeah. So I'm going to ask you to end the controversy right now, right off the bat. When is it okay to start listening to Christmas music? I mean, I listen to it year-round, so I'm the wrong person to ask. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so you're not a, you're not a it too, it's too early Halloween? No. Okay. Because, I mean, okay, I'm not going to listen to I'm Dreaming of a White Christmas or stuff like that. Okay. But I'm going to listen to like Silent Night, O Holy Night, Okay. And the first Noel, because those are songs that I feel like the message can be needed all year round. But I'm not going to listen to Jingle Bells dashing through the snow. <laughs> Santa Claus is coming to town. Yeah, that. that stuff I can't handle year round. Gotcha. Even though I don't mind if it just suddenly pops up randomly. <laughs> I don't mind that, but I'm not going to intentionally listen to it. Gotcha. The Light the World campaign that's being put on by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is a sort of call to service. But we encourage acts of community service and Christian acts. And we're to kind of do that within our sphere of influence. So you're joining us as, as part of that effort. So thank you for, for being willing to donate your time. But last year you were part of this effort also, and you contributed a song called My Little Prayer. Could you take a minute to tell us about that song? And there's kind of a unique story behind that too. Sure. So it definitely had the Christmas theme to it with its sound and the video and the time of its release being a part of the Light the World campaign. But it was a song that I wrote aside from it being just the holiday times. It was just something I try to do every morning and every night, say a prayer. And sometimes at night I fall asleep before I can say my prayer. It's just something that happens. Yeah, <laughs> hate to admit it, but it just happens more often than I'd <laughs> like it to. And one of these nights I fell asleep before saying a prayer. And that night I, was, I had a dream and I was talking to God. I was praying. And what was more interesting about it was I was singing my prayer. I was singing as I communicated with God and he communicated back to me in music, which was something I had never actually experienced, at least in like a dream and stuff where I was just talking to him and understood what was going on. And we were communicating back and forth 
through music. And he told me to get up and write down what I was saying in my, my write down my prayer. I wasn't sure how to do that. I was like, well, uh, but I'm sleeping. I don't know how to, <laughs> but I, I didn't know how to wake up <laughs> from a dream. And he said, if you don't get up now, you'll forget it in the morning. And so I said, okay, well, I'll try my best, but I might need a little help. Surely enough, I got up and I had the song. It was still there in my head. And so I went straight to the piano and I just wrote down my prayer. Cool. And so that's how that song came about. And I thought, you know, I didn't know if I was going to release it or not, but it seemed like the right time. I feel like prayer is a really great way to begin to bring positivity in our lives, to start that communication with God. It seemed like the right time. Awesome. Well, we'll put a link to that on the posting of this episode at ldsperspectives.com. But it's interesting because as I was listening to the song and listening to the words specifically, the, the scripture from Doctrine and Covenants 2512, for my soul delighteth in the song of the heart, yea, the song of the righteous is a prayer unto me. What about not only just this song in particular, but about music in general is like a prayer for you. Well, I always relate it back to when I was a little kid from the time I was nine or 10 years old. That's when I really started feeling connected to music in a personal level. I enjoyed listening to music. I enjoyed singing along to things. My dad was really into musicals and my mom was into Hispanic music or just singing as well. And I would really just enjoy singing along to whatever they played for me, whether it was Les Miserables or Selena music. Then I started developing my own connection to it and relationship with it because I found that I felt close to to God. And so when I would go as a nine or 10 year old into the backyard, I'd usually go by where the trees were because I just needed to feel peace. And when I would go over there, I'd just naturally start feeling like I needed to sing. And no one was there to listen to me, but I knew I was being heard. And so I would just go and sometimes I'd just sing whatever melodies were in my head or make them up. And I just look up at the sky and I don't think I really thought about what I was doing. I just knew that I was connecting. And I feel like that for me was like I was getting to sing for God. It wasn't the satisfaction as a little kid. It wasn't singing for an audience. It wasn't about getting praised. It was simply being able to sing for my father in heaven. And that's as simple as it was as a little kid. And I've tried to reconnect to that because I felt like I lost that mm. sense and that purpose behind what I was given. I feel like I understood as a little kid that God gave this to me so that I could connect to him and understand him better. Then I got mixed with everything with American Idol, releasing an album, releasing Crush and like these songs. Suddenly I was this different image and this different lifestyle and personality that was tied to music. And I feel like I lost that. And when I went on my mission and came back from my mission, like during my mission, I, I felt like I reconnected to that purpose. Awesome. So I guess that's yeah a long answer to how I feel like music can be a prayer. No, that's heart. fantastic. I believe you contributed another song to the Light the World campaign that was with the piano guys. Is that right? Were you working on something with them? Three years ago, we were a part of the campaign that the church did, Savior is Born. And so with that campaign, they had this world record that they were trying to break with the largest nativity scene with the most participants. And we recorded a song, Piano Guys, Peter Hollins, Mormon Tabernacle Choir, and myself, we all sang Angels from the Realms of Glory, which is like a angels we have heard on high. And the Piano Guys and Peter Hollins both have put it on their albums this year. But it was part of the A Savior is Born campaign a few okay. years ago. 
you've been lighting the world for a long time now. And even prior to your mission, you did a lot of philanthropic efforts around the world. What are some of those organizations and things that you do, the service that you provide, even before your mission and today? Do you mean as a in the sense of being a public figure kind of thing? Sure, yeah. um, as far as terms of like being a musician and being able to take advantage of that with a public figure, I've done a lot of stuff with kids. So you get asked, get a lot of requests to do a lot of different charities, be a part of different foundations and organizations. So there is a time when I was doing things with Mentors International where they help with micromanagement and micro businesses for people who are trying to get out of poverty and start their own businesses. Then I did something with Rising Star Outreach where I went with a friend of mine, Ron Gunnell, to get familiar with this, this school that they had for children with leprosy in leprosy colonies who didn't have that opportunity because they, there are a lot of stigmas. and They're ostracized in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I think when I started getting more involved with kids, I realized that's where my heart is. Mm. And so now when I go on the road, I usually, I've partnered with a child fund in the past, and I currently go with Holt International, which is an adoption. Well, they do a lot of different things, but I guess mainly it's helping children find homes and help them prevent from having to leave their homes and be or become orphans is okay. kind of their goal. From the time that they're born, you know, with young teenage or just single mothers. So they're literally there from the time they're born, even to the point when they're they're never adopted. Mm. I was just in the Philippines in October and I met with some of the, with Holt Philippines. And I met with these kids that they had all in a home and they were anywhere from age 19 to 24. Wow. And they're in this home living together. They were scholars. They had scholarships to go to to get their education in college. And I asked them, well, do you ever get to see your family while you're all living here? And the woman who was part of the organization came over to me and she said, um, these kids don't have families. They were actually orphans that were never adopted. And I was just amazed that they really, even when they were never able to find a home, Holt was there with these kids, which really touched me. I really love things that are for kids who don't have a voice for themselves. And so that's, I guess, the way I've served being a public figure, but I think there are always ways of serving. I, I think just visits are a big thing that I'm on, you know, by small and simple things are great things brought to pass. And so I believe that even visiting people, checking on how they're doing or paying for someone's meal without them knowing at a restaurant or little things like that, leaving little gifts on people's doors. I think those are really meaningful and impactful ways that we can serve. But for me personally, my favorite way is to just visit people nice. and check on how they're doing. Awesome. And I bet that just lightens the whole day for them, their whole life experience in some cases. It's fun. I There's a woman who from my neighborhood that I used to live in. Her name's Ella, Ella Stephenson. And she's, I think she's 98 now. And I just love to go visit her. She's someone I've always visited since I was... 13 or 14. Hmm. And I think what's neat is that I didn't have to become anything more or anything more of a public figure to be able to still go and visit her and not just give her company, but to benefit from that where she talks about, about all of her kids, all of her grandkids, all of her great grandkids, <laughs> yeah, and I bet. the ones that are going leaving out of the house, going to college, going on a mission, having kids. I just love seeing, she had 14 kids. Wow. And so to be able to, every holiday, her house is decorated for that holiday. And for Christmas, it is just 
amazing. <laughs> she has three rooms full of just Christmas decorations and has people come and sign a guest book. And just, you know, she's not doing as well because age is getting the best of her. And yeah. she just tells me, it's no fun getting old. <laughs> but it's something that I love getting to do. And there are a few other people I visit, but she's just someone that always stands out to me. That's awesome. So you don't have to be anything big. You don't have to be a, a public figure, a mu- musician to be able to serve. And that's what I love. That didn't change as a 13-year-old nobody who was super shy versus a 26-year-old now. Yeah musician performer so you, you've been home from your mission for how long now it's been three and a half years now. three and a half years mm-hmm. so you probably still remember this but uh how did they celebrate christmas down there was it how a big they... deal or i mean it's a big yeah, deal here i think it was a big deal there as well so usually they would have a dinner with their family and they would get the christmas trees out as well there with the families i don't remember as well, because, you know, as a missionary, we're not just hanging around by sure. the Christmas tree, opening presents. <laughs> what was nice, though, is we got to sing a lot. We got to Christmas carol oh, yeah, <laughs> all the time, but not just Christmas carol, deliver a message about Jesus Christ, which was which made Christmas all the more special. Right. Was that just as a mission experience? Did people recognize you? There are times, you know, it, because I was still recently coming off of the this wave of releasing albums and being on TV a lot there when I was in the more developed areas they definitely would come up and did that get you into some doors you wouldn't have otherwise gotten into yeah it actually did I always felt awkward because I didn't like attention anyway like even when I was and that's why people always say you picked the wrong career (laughs) exactly but it's you know I didn't pick this career necessarily it just kind of happened and so I just had to learn how to get used to the attention and on my mission, while I didn't love the attention, I loved that I could be able, I could transition that attention to something else, sure. which was the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that was nice because a lot of times people would be like, I'm surprised that you would come here and that it is important enough to you that you would come to my country and come into my home to, to teach this message when you could have done a lot of other things. And I think that stood out to people as well. The sacrifice. Yeah, and there are some people that were baptized and came into the church, and I still hear from them and keep in touch with them. I wasn't always a part of their teaching time. I usually was just the one who introduced them to the LDS church and to the gospel of Jesus Christ or to an activity, and that was all I did. And so it was neat to know that they weren't just excited and kind of in the thrill of it by, oh, this person, I know who he is and he's coming into my home. It wasn't always about that. Yeah. It, it was it was nice to see that it really could just be an instrument, a segue into something that would be meaningful and change their lives. Yeah. Well, there's probably a few questions that I could ask that are only applicable to a limited few people on the planet. And you're probably one of them in the sense that I'm curious how a person that performed on national TV for 30 million people can get nervous doing like a door approach or a discussion on their mission. <laughs> um, I know they're different. Yeah, they are different. But yeah, I can see what you mean. Having 30 million people, sometimes you just had to get in this mindset where you just weren't even thinking because it was so nerve wracking that you just had to learn how to basically disconnect yourself from everything and kind of just go on autopilot so that you wouldn't have to think about what you're actually doing. At least for me, is that's what I had to do because I was 
I was a very shy person, very timid, and I didn't like attention, as I mentioned. So yeah. the fact of I couldn't think about the fact that there are 30 million people watching, or else that's kind of hard to out. put out in mind, right? Or is it? I don't know. I've never done it. I think so. when you're in, when you're down to the wire and under the pressure and have no other option, you just then you it. just learn how to do it. And yeah. I think the same thing was being a missionary. I mean, that wasn't really any easier. Well, I think to be honest, putting them together side by side, Americanado was harder. A lot of people said, oh, the mission's going to be the hardest thing you've ever done in your life. A lot of people told me that, especially in the well, church. They never went on American Idol either. Yeah. I, and when I came back, I'm like, you know what? American Idol's the hardest thing I've ever done in my <laughs> life because I didn't have that spiritual support. I didn't have that purpose always in tune. I didn't have a companion there. I didn't have a mission president to give me the support and comfort that I needed. I wasn't... I didn't have a lot of those things on American Idol. A lot of times it was a, it was a selfish place to be. Okay. And it was a place, I think it was kind of almost abusive in a way <laughs> because so many people were there telling you what to do, getting upset with what you were doing wrong or whatever. And I, it just was a lot of pressure, especially for a 16-year-old. Yeah. A lot of attention. Sometimes it wasn't positive what people would do and what they would say. So, And, and it wasn't just me. Every single person on... Every contestant of my season, at least I'm sure it happens in other seasons as well, but every single person on my season had a nervous breakdown at one point or another. And it was that much. It, it really, it was a controlled environment. We couldn't just do whatever we wanted. We had to do what we were told. And that was hard as well, along with millions of people watching you. It just wasn't easy. Yeah. So, and it's kind of funny because, you know, again, we as viewers get some kind of a glamorized, very polished view of things. And, you know, I see things like, Here's a guy that got 44 million votes. That's as many votes as Bill Clinton got in 92 when he won the president. <laughs> oh <my gosh. laughs> and then you, you juxtapose that with the guy that is wearing a white shirt and tie and a black name tag walking down the street. And who knows what weird foods you ate while you were down there um, and, and having all these unique experiences. Was there a point where you kind of had a mission moment where you said, gosh, why did I give up what I had to do this? Or was it never a doubt in your mind about going on a mission? I think what's interesting is I, I t it took me a while to be able to get on my mission. So if I was going on my mission, I really had to have a good reason why, because I was under contract. Mm. I had to find a way to have who I was under contract with, with 19 management and record label. I had to give them a good enough reason, and I had to be convinced myself enough of why I needed to do what I was doing so that they would have a, a reason to say, yes, we are willing to release you from this contract. Right. Because before, actually, when I had brought it up about a mission and that young man do it to my then manager, and when I was signed and making an album, they said, well, you can't go because you are obligated to fulfill your contract and you've signed this. You can't just walk away right. and say, never mind. And so it took me a couple years after that for me to talk it through with the people I worked with, with my mentors in the church, my bishop, my family, my friends, and really think, is this really something that I feel like I should do? And is it something that I feel like will benefit my, not just my personal journey or career journey, but my spiritual journey? Because that really is what matters the most. And I had to get that back into perspective Yeah. to think about, yes, it, this could hurt my career, it could hurt where I'm going business-wise, financially, which are important things, especially if I'm looking in the future for family. But what about my spiritual journey? Yeah. And so 
it never came across my mind that, oh, it would have been better for me to stay. I, I just never had that because... Well, you went through that before you left, it sounds like. Before I left, yes. So when you got there, that was it. You were you were sold. <laughs> That's the right word. Yeah, and a lot of times there are a lot of miserable moments on your mission because you feel like, wow, I'm not good at this. I don't know how to teach. Absolutely. I don't know what to say to this person. And it's really hot and I'm and I don't know where to go and I'm tired. I haven't I'm not able to take naps and I'm exhausted. <laughs> and I still have to keep finding a way to see how I can deliver this to somebody and preach the most important thing I can preach to somebody. And I'm just so worn out and I can't even think straight. But yeah. that's a lot of times where you realize this is God's work because I still feel like God's with me and I mean, sometimes you feel alone too. So, I mean, you go through all of it. Yeah. But I ne- even feeling miserable and not feeling good enough, I still felt like that that's where I needed to be. Awesome. And I never regretted leaving because it's like, as miserable as I feel here, this just feels like, I don't know, I, I comparing the two, even comparing when I put them side to side, even as miserable as I could feel on either side or great, the mission always outweighed what I had been through before. Awesome. We're running a little short on time. So <laughs> what I want to do now is I want to jump to some of the questions. I went to social media and got some questions from people that I should ask you. So let's go rapid fire through these. Okay. All right. <laughs> Try. All right. So I was told that the unique quality to your voice was due to a disease or injury. I think it would be interesting to ask about that. Mm. And the concept that hard things often work out for our good. I have to say, I have no idea what they're referencing. I have never even heard that. Okay. So I... Is that even true? I had a... I actually, um, when I was 13, I had a vocal... I had a virus. Okay. And I was sick for months and months and it never got better. It started affecting my talking and we just, okay, it's... Okay, my voice is changing finally. Okay. Nothing new, nothing different from any other guy. But then my my talking started being affected, and then my breathing was even starting to get affected. I was having a hard time breathing. I'm like, okay, something's wrong, and I'm still sick after almost a year of being sick straight. And um, I they found out I had vocal paralysis. Mm. I went to a doctor, Doctor Nasari, and a Doctor Sugarman, and he, I was recommended because a friend of mine was associated with Barbara Streisand, and this was her doctor, ear, nose, and throat doctor, ENT. And he just said, wow, I've never seen this before. Wow. Um, at least not in someone your age. And we're like, what? Is my you know, is my voice changing? What's going on? <laughs> What's the prognosis? And he said, you have a paralyzed vocal cord. And I'm like, okay, great. What does that mean? <laughs> I'm a singer. <laughs> and he said, well, you, we don't know what to do, to be honest. You Usually we get people to have surgery. To be honest, that could permanently damage your voice. And I would recommend that if you want to keep singing. But I don't know what to tell you. You could, he's like, I guess you could try therapy, but I don't know. That'd take a few years and I don't know if it will do anything. Not very comforting. Yeah, it wasn't. I got really depressed actually. So, um, on, I did voice therapy with someone who was actually recommended to me here in Utah, Dean Kalen, uh, by an LA, uh, vocal coach who, Seth Riggs, he was Michael Jackson's vocal coach. And so he, uh, Dean just happened to be in Utah and was exactly what I needed. And Perfect. So I still have the vocal paralysis. Dr. Nasari, who I met with when I was 13, was the same doctor for American Idol uh, years later. And he checked. He's like, I want to see what your voice is like now. And he just said, I can't believe it. That's amazing. He said, this isn't just like you're lucky. He's like, this is a miracle that your voice works the way it does. He just said that this is a miracle. It's something that God's done for you. So there really was some truth behind that. Yeah. Oh, interesting. And I still have it. I still have to do my voice 
warm-ups. I mean, most of us singers did have to anyway, but I especially do. Otherwise... It's damaging. Yeah, but he, he said my vocal cord that works learn how to make up for the one that doesn't. Mm. So my my vocal cords are oddly shaped, but it's it's given me the sound, and it, it works just fine. Awesome. All right, here's the next one. This isn't really a question. I just had one person that wanted to know if you'd be available to come perform their Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> for the Thanksgiving. <laughs> I don't know if people do that. I, uh, well, it depends. What do they have for dinner? What's on the table? Whatever you want is probably their answer. Um, so uh, this next one is, how has your experience in the music industry strengthened your testimony? My experience, man, these aren't so rapid fire, are they? <laughs> um, I realize the power of music I, I, told, I talked about how when I was little, what I learned about it, and I didn't realize that until I went the complete other end of it, where mm. you are around these people who, I mean, a lot of them are wonderful people. A lot of them have different values than you. A lot of them have similar values to you, but most of them aren't Mormon. Most of them aren't LDS. Right. And a lot of them do music for different reasons. They're seeking praise, they're seeking money, they're seeking glory, and it's actually a lot of these bigwig people actually look at it as a positive, as a thrill, as something that motivates them to do what they're doing in being kind of dirty, doing things and kind of stepping on people and kind of making people feel belittled and doing things that are kind of just raunchy. So seeing that negative side helps you see the positive? Is that what you're... It, It does because it helps me be able to compare my own experience okay, and to compare what my values are and decide whether I'm willing to stand by them or not. A lot of times it's scary because people think, oh, you're religious. Great. You know, okay. You know, usually in the entertainment industry, when you're open about being religious, it means you're also open to being judgmental. And it was really a learning time for me to understand where they're coming from, why they felt that way, and also to prove them wrong, to show them I'm very religious and I don't have to be... I don't have to make you feel like you're less than me or belittled, but I can help you feel loved. And I may have to deal with my own insecurities because, you know, a lot of times I was judged for being religious or being a Mormon. And I didn't even do anything. I just, they just found out I was a Mormon, especially during Prop 8. There was a lot of judgment thinking that I was a hater and I hated people or, or I was brainwashed. And to help them understand that that's not the place I'm coming from. But I don't have to change my beliefs to to help someone else feel better about themselves. But really, I can help them respect me and they can feel respected as well. That has taught me a lot on learning, as Thomas S. Monson has taught very well, dare to stand alone and to see the blessings that come from that. And it's not always easy. I will say that it's still not always easy, but it's become easier and I've gained a lot of confidence. Excellent. Who is your favorite American Idol judge? My favorite American Idol judge, I mean, I liked all of them, to be honest, as judges. I like honesty. I like being told sometimes, I don't like to be belittled. I don't like someone to just make fun of me just because. But Simon, I like that he sometimes would just say, you know what, I didn't like this about that. And he was coming from a professional standpoint. And if he liked something, he was also very honest about it. And I liked that. I liked honesty. Randy was just funny as well. And he was the one I kept in touch with the most after because he really liked to look at things from a musical. He, he's a musician himself. He was right. a bass player. He toured with Mariah Carey and, and Journey and other people. So he got 
when you did something musical, he totally got it and he would talk about it. Paula was great, just emotional support. And we needed it. <laughs> we needed that emotional support. She would do it on the camera, but also backstage, she would say, I'm here if you need me. I know what it's like. I know oh. what you're going through. I know, which the other two judges didn't understand. The emotional part of where you're bearing your soul, you're being vulnerable and then being critiqued and judged on that. She got that. And so... And she still does. She still shows that support 10 years later. Wow. That, so it wasn't just on the stage, which is really nice. Cool. What songs are closest to your heart? Songs, like my own songs or just songs in general? Interpret it as you will. I've always liked Christian music. I've always liked the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. People ask me, what's the most listened to thing on my iTunes? To be honest, if I'm going to answer honest, it's the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. Wow, okay. Because I like music that lifts and inspires. I like choral music in general. So I, I listen to a lot of gospel, Christian choir music as well. Awesome. And so uh, the song by Richard Smallwood, Total Praise, is another one of my favorite songs that just speaks to me because it talks about the power of music where I will lift my hands to, and I in total praise and I will lift mine eyes to the hill knowing that my help comes from thee. I think that's the power of music. You can praise God and we are designed to praise. And so I think music, you can praise a lot of different things, but if you use it the right way, you can really feel and gain a, you can feel God and gain a testimony of that he lives. Okay. Two more. So what is your favorite Chilean food and have you found any restaurants stateside that serve it? I've found, you know, I'm so sad because one of the one of my favorite places that served Chilean food was in Provo, and it's no longer open. Oh, okay. I don't know why they closed, but it was Pantruca, Pantrucas. But they have a uh, another place actually in Utah called, called Lomitos, and they have a few restaurants in L.A. that I've been to as well. And, you know, it's never going to be the same because, you know, they just grow the food differently. They have right. different resources. But what's a dish? I don't even really oh, know a dish so that would even qualify. The empanadas are oh, okay. definitely... One of the signature things. Okay. I, I love just the simple, basic cheese empanadas and also pastel de choclo, which is like this this corn casserole kind of thing, mm. a twist of this corn casserole, Chilean style, that is very signature there. And every time I think of Chile, that's a, a taste that comes back to, <laughs> back to my mouth. And see, so you say Chile. See, now I sound like I'm a gringo, right? So I say Chile. Oh, I, well, <laughs> does it I matter? Mean, I mean, you can just, you can learn. It's never too late to, to learn Chile. <laughs> to learn the accent. All right, cool. Well, again, let's get back to the Light the World campaign and just kind of put a, an exclamation point on this idea that we're here with this campaign to encourage acts of, of service. What are some other specifics about the campaign that you can tell us? Use the hashtag, that kind of stuff? Or Yeah, I've, it's really just a service-driven, pay-forward kind of a a campaign, we're seeing how get it, coming together, we can light the world. It doesn't take just a Mormon. It doesn't take just a Christian. I think it takes everybody. You know, we're of all different faiths, from all different backgrounds, all different stories all over the world. And so when you come together and bring the light that you have, I think the best way to bring your light and to light the world is through service. Yeah. And by small acts of kindness. So 
it's really a challenge of seeing how you can do that. Mormon Channel and the LDS Church social media platforms, they have a lot of recommendations as well, which I really like. Sometimes it's like, okay, I want to serve, but I can't just knock on the same person's door every day. They'll have little, they'll have ideas for you and challenges of how you can serve. And they're really fun to, to follow. Yeah, They lighten your day. They lighten your mood. Sometimes you're in a dark place and you think, how can I light the world when I'm in such a dark place and I don't have light in my life? Usually you find that light by by serving. By doing that, yeah. And then it's like, there it is. There's a light and it feels nice to have in my life again. We all have our moments in life where we look back and think that that, was, that moment was more impactful than I could have ever realized. So looking back on your life and, and thinking of maybe these moments where there was something particularly meaningful that you didn't even know that it would be. Can you think of a moment where an act of service maybe was was more impactful for you than you kind of anticipated? I just love widows. I love how President Thomas S. Monson always had his stories about those 80-plus widows that he always visited yeah. and how he spoke at every each one of their funerals. There's just something special about that. They've accomplished a lot. They've stayed faithful or they've gone through a lot and they've they're just alone. And to see a woman alone, especially when she comes to the age where she's no longer able to take care of herself, has always had a place for me. And I just love them. I love their spirits. I love their knowledge, what they share. There are a couple of guy widows. Widowers, that, yeah. Well, yeah, that um, are fun to visit. But there was a time when I visited this widow named Nellie Higby. And um, I don't know what it, why it came about. I was 14 years old and I went to my neighbor I used to always rollerblade around the neighborhood. I didn't really have friends for me to hang out with, but I like to do things for people without them knowing. And I just said, who do you know that needs to rake their leaves? And this neighbor, well, Sister Slivka is how I know her, but she she um, said, well, there's this woman named Nellie Higby. She's a widow and she, I know she's not really able to do things on her own. So you could probably see what you can do for her. And I said, well, I don't want her to know because I don't like attention, but I will go in the morning and rake the leaves for her. But sure enough, she was up in the morning and she caught me and she said, and she brought some money for me. And I said, well, you don't have to give me this money. She's like, well, if I don't pay you, I've got to pay somebody. So might as well be you. I went back to Sister Slivka and I was like, I don't know what to do with this. I don't want to serve and be paid for it. And she's like, well, I guess you can put it back in the mailbox. So I did. Mm. I just put it back in her mailbox. Nice. <laughs> but, you know, not too long after that, she passed away. And she had thanked me a couple of times for what I did for her. And as a 14-year-old, I just thought, you know, that's that's neat to know that she was grateful for what I did. And I didn't think I was a anybody. I was a nobody who just liked to rollerblade around the neighborhood. That was something that always stood out to me, and it, it encouraged me to say, you know, I want to keep doing things like this. Yeah, it stayed with you all these years. Mm-hmm. Well, you are a busy person. Perhaps uh, busy is an understatement, but we want to thank you for your time to come in and support the Light the World campaign. So, again, listeners, we're encouraging you to use the hashtag in your social media efforts to use the tag Light the World and uh, find acts of service. But uh, thank you, David Archuleta, for coming on the podcast and, and for being a good example. Well, thank you for having me. Be sure to check out LDSPerspectives.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, download transcripts, and find show notes. LDS Perspectives podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed represent the views of the guests or the podcasters alone. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, They in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices.